I am of the opinion, based on what I have read, we are not addicted to food. We are habituated to it. We get dopamine going off on our brain when we anticipate eating certain foods, when we do, but the generation of dopamine does not mean we're addicted because we we don't meet the criteria with eating, with food, that we do with other things. So I separate those out based on what I've read. I, I think that it addiction is, when I'm talking about drugs, alcohol, chemical addictions, it has to do with how your brain works. Hey, my friends, this is Nishant, and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Kirk Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on this show is to sit with the world-class experts who deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by my own Friday newsletter. Every Friday, I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers which mentions what I am learning recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading, articles and blogs I'm exploring, and much, much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website, https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me, n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. And today's guest is Karen Koenig. Karen is a licensed psychotherapist, motivational speaker, and international author who has specialized in the field of compulsive, emotional, and restrictive eating for more than 30 years. She is a co-founder of the Greater Boston Collaborative for Body Image and Eating Disorders and a former member of the Professional Advisory Committee of the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association of Massachusetts. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Karen Koenig. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's been an honor to have you on the show. So I want to start by asking you about one of the books that you carried in 1980s. And the book name is Fat is a Feminist. Why did you carry that book with you? Because I had eating problems. I was tired of dieting. And uh, the title obviously caught me. That is a feminist issue. But boy, this is a different approach than Weight Watchers. And so I, I picked it up and I started reading it. And I, I just hooked hook, line and sinker. It, it was such a revolutionary idea back then. What was it? revolutionized about it back then? The entire premise. I mean, again, I grew up with diet culture and the, the premise was you don't have to diet, you don't have to binge, you can learn to eat according to your appetite. And um, we didn't do that in my family. So this was a revolutionary idea. And the culture certainly wasn't advocating to tune into your body. It was all this external, how you look, what you should weigh, what you should eat. So that was um, just remarkable to me. Where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Manhattan, and I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, which is n northern New Jersey, right across the George Washington Bridge. 
And how old are you? 74, just turned 74. So this is my honor to be bringing your wisdom of last 74 years to our dear listener. Um, I hope it's wisdom. I, I, I think a lot of it is, yep. <laughs> and who did you introduce you to this book called Fat is a Feminist? I don't remember. I mean, um, I don't remember. I mean, there was no internet back then because it was nine, around 1980. Uh, maybe I read about it or somebody mentioned it. I, I don't know, but I was so taken by it. Uh, I would read it like the, the AA big book. You see people carrying, you know, it's, not, it's actually AA little book that they carry around. And I would carry it around and talk about, oh, we don't have to be dieting and we can tune into our appetites. And my friends would want to borrow the book and I couldn't part with it. So I bought a second copy and that was the one I lent out. And the other one I carried with me in my purse all the time. And I would use it while I was eating and it had food all over it. But it was just an absolute treasure. And it was one of the first books. And now there's hundreds, I don't know, thousands of books on intuitive eating, mindful eating, how to stop dieting, my books on normal eating. But back then, it was really the beginning of what is now an international movement and has been for decades to connect to our appetites. What specific things did you learn from that book? I learned that I could trust my body to tell me what, when, and how much I wanted to eat, that I didn't need all these external cues. I didn't need to count calories. I was an eater who, I, I found a diary that I'd had in high school, and it said, oh, wonderful day, just ate one apple. And then, of <laughs> course, I'd binge all weekend. I could eat an, an entire apple pie by myself. I was a voracious binge eater. So to me, the idea that I could choose when I was hungry and know what hunger felt like, pick food that I enjoyed and enjoy it, and then stop while I was full or satisfied. It's just, it was an alien thought, but that's what transforms eating disorders around. So those were the things I found so valuable. Is there a difference between overeating and binge eating? Yes. In a general sense. So binge eating according to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, is eating a larger amount of food than the average person was in, in about two hours and doing this several times a week and feeling remorse and regret and self-hate. So it's it's somewhat specific. I don't go, I, I don't really go much in treatment with people, but the definition in the manual, I go more on what people say. I mean, binging has an intensity. There's no end to it. You don't even know what you're questing for. Whereas overeating can be just being a little chronically eating a little bit more than is really necessary or than what satisfies you could be having two cookies instead of one. A binge would usually involve all the cookies. So going back into your early years, did you have overeating problem, binge eating problem, or eating disorder? All of the above. I dieted and I tried to restrict my food intake, which of course we know now dieting is the 
gateway behavior to overeating, emotional eating, binge eating, because it um, messes with your metabolism, among other things. So I was a restrictive eater, and then I would binge on the weekends. I did this through college, through my early 20s. And then, as I said, around 1980, I came across fat as a feminist issue, and it just changed my life. So when you talk about an eating disorder, usually, I mean, I think of of it as in a general sense, but in terms clinically, an eating disorder is anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and then there's something called eating disorder, NOS, not otherwise specified. So, but most people have what I call dysregulated eaters. I mean, people who have eating disorders. I don't I don't actually like the term eating disorder because it sounds like to cure that you'd have to have ordered eating. And that sounds too much like a diet. And what is ordered eating? So I use the term dysregulated eating or eaters because the opposite is regulated. And that is really what we're striving for to regulate our food intake. What was the main cause of your dysregulated eating back then? A couple things. I think a lot to do with my father. There's there's some probably genetics involved, but my dad was someone who ate a lot and he'd gain 10 pounds and he'd lose 10 pounds. I don't think he ever gained more than maybe 10, but he was his he had a nickname of garbage can because we would when we went out to eat with other people, let's say other couples and their children or even family, he would finish off everything on other people's plates. And <laughs> hence he got the name garbage can and that was the behavior that was modeled to me. So there's that piece of it. Then there's sort of two strikes on dad's side and one on mom's. And then, so the other thing for him is he would make me finish all the food on my plate. And he would literally sit and at the table with me if I had, I don't know, four carrots left on my plate. And he'd sit and he'd read the, the New York World Telegram and just sit until I finished my food, which was awful because what it was saying is you don't know how much you want. So those are the two things with dad and with my mom who was a very normal eater, she had this weird thing about you couldn't finish, you couldn't start one food until you finished the other. So if there were two boxes of cereal, you had to eat, let's say, the cornflakes before you, they'd have to be finished before you could start on the Cheerios. So you could see how that would encourage overeating. And uh, she did that with a lot of different kinds of foods. So between those three things and the pressure to be thin and be attractive as a you know, teenager, that got me into dieting and binge eating. And what was that moment? And when was that moment when you realized that you have eating problems? Huh, that's, that's hard to say because when the book Fat as a Feminist Issue came along, I was really ripe for something like that. So it had to be before that. Um, you know, I, I really don't know. I don't have the, the recollection. I just, I was of course not happy overeating and not being thin. So I, I just, I was so unhappy all along with it through my 
I guess, my teenage years and then college years because I spent a lot of time dieting and binging in college as well. And uh, fast forward now in this modern culture, what issues do you see working with your clients and with others? What are the main causes of overeating these days? I, I would say what they say, but it's not exactly true. But they would say stress. I believe it is that much more so than even when I was growing up, this intense pressure to have a certain kind of body. It, it used to be that you had to be thin, but now you have to be thin and you have to have high energy and muscles and be flexible. Oh, it's way too much to ask of people. And I think there's a whole big piece of that pressure and people rebelling against it and, and just not being able to do that because our bodies are not all made to be alike that there's just no respect for diversity in so many different ways, among them weight, size, and shape diversity, that genetics make up 50 to 70% of our eating, of our what our weight will be. And so that leaves you 30% to 50% to work with, but it's not 100%. So mm -hmm. it's the enormous pressure and the weight stigma and weight stigma causes depression and anxiety. And so what do people do to handle that? They eat more. It's sort of round and round we go. It's a sad situation. If let's say stress is the problem for overeating, so what can we do to mitigate the stress or to just release the stress? I think it starts even before that because it's it's the perception of stress, stress being in the vernacular more than we can tolerate or want to. A lot of times people will be busy and they'll call it stressed. When I'm busy, I call it busy. I, I don't have that inner pressure to perform or do everything perfectly. So a lot of the stress comes from what we bring to the party, which is most of my clients, dysregulated eaters, have certain personality traits that make their lives feel more stressful. It's not that they actually have more stress, but they're perfectionists. They're approval seekers and people pleasers. They think in all or nothing terms. <laughs> they never feel good enough. You can see how that would lead to stress, yes? Yes. As opposed to, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to do some things well, not other things. That's fine. I love myself anyway. So th those are the personality traits more than the actual stress in someone's life. And then there's the stress of having depression and anxiety disorders, which are biological, biochemical. And that makes life harder. So if you're programmed by biology and you have a dysfunctional family that so that you develop with these traits and I, it's just very easy to, to turn to food. But to answer in another way, it's a habit. So one of the ways to, first of all, it's to picture, is this really stress and decide maybe you can call it something else that reduces stress. But if 
if one is stressed, and what I say to clients is, if there was no such thing in the world, what would you do as food? What would you do? And inevitably, they come up with something. I'd read a book. I'd take a walk. I'd call my friend. I'd play with the dog. I'd go to sleep. I'd rest. And the other thing is food becomes the answer to everything, not just stress. When people are tired, they eat. When they want to celebrate, they eat. When they're sad, they eat. When they want comfort, they eat. So it even goes beyond stress. It's the all-purpose answer when really it's only the answer to Am I hungry and how can I nourish myself? Absolutely. And I want to ask you about how did you take a pause or stop your dysregulated eating? What measures and steps did you take? Well, after I read Fat as a Feminist Issue, there were several other books that came out. So I read those. And I don't recall the titles, but it was in the early 80s, somewhere probably would fall into the category of feminism. But there was a particular author who's written a lot of books, Janine Roth, who's quite well known. She's been on Oprah several times. And so I read her books. And I'm the kind of person, again, this goes back to personality traits. If somebody else can do it, I think, why the heck can't I learn? If they can learn to do that, I can learn to do that. As opposed to the other kind of person who see someone who can do something, they say, ah, I can't do that. So I had a lot of resilience and a sense of empowerment. And so I read as many books as I could. And then for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, I was working in advertising. And I my eating had calmed down, but I really wanted to be thinner. So I restricted myself and then I started purging. And for about a year and a half, I had bulimia. And I do remember... The moment that changed, I mentioned it to a friend and she said, I want you to call me after you call a therapist. You can't be doing that. And I did. The next day I called a therapist and after a couple of months, I gave up um, my purging and continued to work on becoming a normal eater until I did. What kind of foods were you eating mostly oh, at that point? Oh, goodness. It's so fun. You'd have to see me. I'm at 74. I'm probably 4'10 and a half. I was 5'1 at my tallest. And I weigh under 100 pounds. So I'm this little little thing. People think of me, oh, you're so little. So, And I was about 30 pounds heavier in high school and college. And um, I could eat, I'm not kidding, an entire frozen. I loved frozen apple pie. I could eat a box of donuts. I could eat half a pizza. I could eat a quart of ice cream. I'm talking about in one sitting. When I think about it, it was just painful. And then I had my binging buddies. And uh, one of our favorites was uh, Oreo Oreo cookie cake, like you'd get for birthdays. And then I just overate everything. I, I remember having dinner plans when I lived in Boston with friends and I got there early and I bought the, a jar of what's called wheat nuts. I don't think they make them anymore. I hope not because they were really made of garbage. But <laughs> they had a crunch that you could not beat them. I ate that entire jar of wheat nuts sitting in the car before I went in to this Chinese restaurant and ate an entire meal. I live in Austin, Texas. And if I want to overeat, I overeat tacos. Yes. <laughs> At least they're probably healthier than we, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's always plenty of foods to overeat. 
and we like sweets. Sugar, fat, salt, the, the triumvir, triumvirate. And uh, I will say for myself, when I overeat at times, and there is a cause for me, if I'm not sleeping well at any mm-hmm. point, that causes me to overeat. And that gives me a feeling of a warm hug. Somebody is giving me a warm hug. So Karen, when you overeat, what did you feel? What kind of emotions did you feel? after overeating? Before I answer that, let me say that even people who are normal eaters, regulated eaters, we overeat occasionally. So it's not overeating per se. The goal is not to never overeat. Sometimes we'll just say, oh, I'll have a few more bites. It's so delicious. That's fine. But there's that kind of overeating, which is normal overeating. And then there's the kind that is driven by something else. And when you talk about sleep, there is a reason why we crave food when we don't sleep well. And that is because there are two hormones that that regulate appetite. One is ghrelin, G-H-R-E-L-I-N, which stimulates the appetite. And the other is leptin which is a satiation hormone. So when you don't get enough sleep, your body produces more ghrelin and it makes you hungrier. So that may be one of the reasons why you overeat also when you get enough sleep, not just that warm, huggy, comforting feeling. Mm -hmm. So when you overeat... What did I feel? Disgust, contempt, self-hate, beyond disappointment, frustration, hopelessness, helplessness, just total, totally defective. What is wrong with me? I cannot control my eating. Desperation. I would say that that was enough to feel all those things. And to, even when I wasn't overeating, it was always hanging over my head. I could do that again. And never wanting to go back to those shameful, shameful feelings. And I I mean, I didn't know then that I could have had compassion for myself. And that's one of the things that helps people turn their eating around is to overeat and instead of hating oneself and feeling ashamed, feeling compassion. And compassion is nothing more than offering kindness um, in the face of suffering. So had I known that, I could have shortened my eating disorder, but I didn't know that then. For how long did you have eating disorder or dysregulated eating? Let's see. I probably started in my preteen, I don't know, 20, 30 years. I probably started even before that because I can remember at camp being always finishing my food and I had to finish my food when I was a young kid. So I'd say about 30 years. So I I consider myself over half a lifetime recovered. (laughs) And at what point did you realize that you want to help others overcome eating problems? And when did you enter into your own psychotherapy as becoming a psychotherapist? It was kind of strange. My my best friend, who is still my best friend, and we were binging buddies, eating buddies, and we both struggled. She struggled more with weight, and but we both struggled with eating. We, 
I think she came across this program. I was telling her about the books I read, and I can I cannot think of the name of it, but it was teaching people how to be normal eaters. And she bought a franchise, and we were both working on our own eating. And I, she hired me as the facilitator. I was bet- between jobs. I was, uh, I think, in my maybe late twenties, uh, early thirties, and so that's what we did. She ran the company, and I taught people according to this program. It was a program out of Western Massachusetts. I taught people how to become regulated normal eaters. And I did that for years. And then, of course, what happens when your teachers after class, people say, oh, I'd just love to talk to you more about this, which is how I ended up doing counseling with them. And then I said, wow, I'm doing a lot of this. I think I better go back to school and find out how to, be, how to become a therapist, which I would say that I, I had wanted to be for a long time. And I, I never knew if that would be right for me. But then I started to realize, yes, this is just what I wanted. So I went back to school in my late 30s and I went to Simmons College School of Social Work in Boston. And I loved it. It was just perfect for me. And just to show you how not a perfectionist I am, I was one of the few people who went through graduate school on pass-fail. Everybody else wanted grades, grades, grades. I just wanted to go there and learn as much as I could. And I, of course, I passed. And then I, I stopped seeing clients who had eating problems. And I got a full-time job at a methadone clinic. And I, so I stuck with kind of addiction substance abuse. And then I worked there for six years. And I, I was a downhill skier. And I decided, oh, I want more time to ski and I want to write and I want to work for myself. So I opened my, I left that job and I opened my own practice in Boston. And I had that until I closed it and moved down to Florida with my husband and opened a and practice here where I do primarily eating disorders. In Boston, I did a much more of a mix. If I understand correctly, after you went to school, you started working in addiction substance yes. use setting. And after that, you started your own practice to treat people to regulate their eating. I want to underscore this addiction substance use. Can you describe or explain what did you do in that setting? Because and then the reason I'm asking is I'm very fascinated about learning why people are addicted to external substances such as heroin or drugs or weeds. So can you explain on that, please? I can, as a non-scientist, a scientist would have a much better explanation. I, I will first say that I am of the opinion, based on what I have read, we are not addicted to food. We are habituated to it. We get dopamine going off on our brain when we anticipate eating certain foods, when we do, but the generation of dopamine does not mean we're addicted because we we don't meet the criteria with eating, with food that we do with other things. So I separate those out based on what I've read. I, I think that it addiction is when I'm talking about drugs, alcohol, chemical addictions, it has to do with how your brain works. I remember reading a book before I started at the methadone clinic on people with addictions because I really didn't have a lot of familiarity with it. And 
what came across in the book with every interview was that they wanted to feel normal. So you you start to get the idea that that other people can feel more normal without these substances. And so there's a, a very large biochemical component to it. There's skill deficits, and, and these are what overlap with the problems with food. I, I put them in several different areas. One is life skill deficits. How do you have relationships? How do you set goals? How do you problem solve? How do you balance work and play? These are all life skills. Personality traits. If you tend to be all or nothing and shame-based, it's really easy to fall into addictions. You're either using or you're not using. You're dieting or you're binging. And belief systems, what you believe about life, yourself, relationships, the world. And so you, you get a flavor of what people are missing who use this external substitute. But I do believe that there has to be that biological connection because we know from studies that, for instance, in the Vietnam War, people who came back addicted to heroin, if they didn't have a pre-morbid disposition to it, kind of gave it up. You know, they were back in the States and they weren't in that situation. It wasn't around. They weren't under the stress. A lot, they gave it up more easily than people who had an underlying predilection biologically to substances. So I hope that answered your question. Yes, it does. Do you see any connection of any sort of trauma and childhood issues or childhood trauma with addiction and eating disorders? Yes. Well, with both. Absolutely. And that was the piece that I had left out, that trauma changes are biochemical, particularly if it's repeated over and over in childhood. And How do you define trauma? Excessive stress on the nervous system. I mean, that's there's probably better definitions, but that's how I would think of it. And it can be chronic or it can just be a particular event. If you were mugged and beaten, if you were raped, that's an event, situational. Or if you were chronically yelled at as a, a, a child or deprived of love, neglected. Abandoned. You know, abandoned, yes. There's, there's many ways to experience trauma. And I would say certainly many of my clients, they all had dysfunctional childhoods. Or they wouldn't be in therapy, but we all our childhoods are dysfunctional to greater or lesser extent. But any who have suffered trauma are at much higher risk because their nervous systems don't function in the same, in, in a healthy way. So they're at risk for external things, turning to external things to feel better. And that gets back to that feeling normal. And so it's what's called biopsychosocial. It's all of those things. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Gabor Mate? I know the name. He's a Hungarian trauma specialist physician. So he, his definition of trauma is that trauma is not something what happened to you. It is something that happens inside of you. Yeah. Would that be like saying it is how you perceive a trauma, an event? It's the meaning you mm -hmm. give it, how you perceive it? Yes, yeah. can be. It can be what happens inside of you. And an event doesn't have to be a rape or a massive beating. 
it can be a small event that can cause something inside of you and that you cannot forget over a long period of time. You you create stress and you learn to cope in a negative way and you don't know how to resolve that, what is happening inside your body. So trauma versus traumatic event, they are separate. That's what he mentions. Yes. It would, trauma is the ev- result of your interaction with the event and what it does to you. Yes. Yes. So when you work with clients, do you see that they have more of childhood trauma or there is something else going on? I have to answer yes. <laughs> I, I see both. It, de- it, it depends because even though there's so many similarities with clients, there's just all different. I, I mean, everybody is so different with their combination of things that I, there's no way to answer it as one and the other. It's always a mixture. And then there's there's trauma with a small T and there's trauma with a large T, depending on what the event is, how it's interpreted, how often it happened, what was going on in your life when it did happen. I think a lot of my clients don't realize that they had trauma in their lives until we talk about it and or that they had external stresses that no one should have to ever go through. And so Sometimes it's just knowing that they have had something extraordinary happen. Although I understand when you're saying it doesn't have to be extraordinary, but the meaning they gave it was extraordinary. And hmm. most of the time, trauma is random, particularly when you're, when you're a child, you have no control over it. So it, it's it's things that happen to you and it's the perceptions that you have and then how the memory is stored. And that's, I work a lot with my what I use, although I'm not completely trained in it, it is called rapid resolution therapy, which was developed by Dr. John Conley. And he talks a, a lot about get, making a different meaning of the event, no matter what it is, because if it happened, it's over. And the trauma comes from the brain thinking that it's not over yet. So I do a lot of work on what I call recall and reality. Can you please give us an example of rapid resolution therapy or events like this? Sure. So I'm thinking of a client of mine whose mother was alcoholic, didn't have a father. She was the oldest of, I don't know, seven kids. They were very, very poor. And so on several, and she was very neglected. She was the parentified child. So now you put her in any group of of people she feels the need to take care of everybody and put herself last. Because when she was a child, if she ever did what she wanted rather than take care of her siblings, which her mother should have been doing, she would feel guilty. She can't sit and read a book. So Mm. it was adaptive for her in childhood, the way the memory is stored, always take care of others, because if she didn't, she'd get in trouble. But it's maladaptive now, because now if you don't take care of yourself and you only take care of others... Life is not very good. So that's that's one example. The other is because she had to go begging at the neighbors, she was always feeling ashamed. So now if she doesn't have money, she feels tremendous shame, which is really attached to what she felt back then. 
that help explain it? Absolutely. I want to ask you about that you mentioned earlier you were teaching in Massachusetts about putting a pause or stopping emotional eating or dysregulated eating. Could you teach us some of the principles now in brief, how to put a stop on this thing? Again, my approach covers many realms. One of them is trauma in resolving whatever is bothering you about what happened in the past, which is not happening now. The other is making sure you have a rational belief system. If you believe I have to finish everything on my plate, you're going to have trouble or stopping eating. So making sure your beliefs, particularly about food, are rational. Effective, useful personality traits. You have to give giving up perfectionism, all or nothing thinking, pleasing other people, getting approval from other people, being impatient. These are all things that a lot of dysregulated eaters are. So becoming more patient, more self-centered, not selfish, but self-centered, seeing life in a more nuanced way. So those are personality traits, life skills, how to have really healthy interpersonal relationships, how to balance work and how to problem solve. Some people really don't know how to do that, what what the strategies are for problem solving and which part of your brain do you use? You'll just say, no, I have a feeling. So there's a whole bunch of life skills and resolving underlying issues. Some people when they lose weight, they feel very vulnerable. So they put the weight back on. Or if their parents wanted them to lose weight, so they they do it, but they kind of want to rebel because it feels really crummy to be doing having the kind of body somebody else wanted. So stopping, there's a lot of that in dysregulated eating, stopping the rebellion, which at this point is against self. So then there are the eating the actual rules of normal eating, which is to eat mostly when you are hungry, which means having a hunger scale in your head and knowing that the purpose of eating is to nourish one's body and enjoy the food. Second is eating foods that you do enjoy, getting rid of the idea of good and bad foods. That It's not a moral issue, it's nutritional. There's more and less nutritious foods. And we can't always be eating just nutritious foods, but finding a balance. Third is eating mindfully, particularly in the learning stage. Um, as I say to people, you didn't drive a car while you were eating a ham sandwich. You were focused on driving the car. So if you're learning to eat a ham sandwich, ham sandwich slowly, mindfully, you're not driving the car. And really paying exquisite attention to fullness and taste and satisfaction. And that's the fourth rule is stopping when you're full or satisfied. Full being quantity and satisfaction being quality. So I I work on all those things with people to help them become regulated or normal eaters. Thank you for giving us this framework. And could you suggest some concrete practices that we can start? right away. Yeah, it's a really easy flow chart. When you get the urge to eat, you just picture a flow chart. You say, am I hungry? And if the answer is yes, am I hungry enough to eat? If the answer is yes, 
What I what do I want to eat? If the answer is no, you immediately go to what am I feeling? And then you decide what you can do with the feeling. So you go back up to the top. Am I hungry? If the answer is no, then it's right over to what am I feeling? And that starts to help you break that sort of one long thought. I feel I eat. So that's one way. Eating without distraction. Again, practicing. Not You don't have to do that your whole life, but eating slowly, putting up little signs or timer that says, are you full? Are uh, Signs that say, are you satisfied? Are you still hungry? Stopping eating if you're feeling emotional and saying, what's going on? And starting to separate those two and not looking at food as good and bad, not being attached to weight. That's a whole nother conversation. The image I use is eating a waiter like eating is the locomotive. Weight is the caboose. You cannot focus. You can't get the train going if you're just focused on the caboose. The caboose follows the locomotive. Weight, for the most part, all our weights are all different based on genetic activity, lots of other things. But for the most part, our weight will follow our eating. Yes. In your new book, Words to Eat By Using the Power of Self-Talk to Transform Relationship with Food, I think we are not discussing about the power of self-talk. <laughs> Can we, could you please... Explain about the power of self-talk, how we can integrate the concept of self-talk into all this stuff. Well, I, the first thing is to realize that our brains hear commands. So when we, a client will come in and she'll go, oh, I'm so overwhelmed. I am so overwhelmed. The brain hears be overwhelmed and it's like, okay, I'll be overwhelmed. So we don't even realize that we program ourselves with what we say to ourselves. So the first thing is to listen for the self-talk, to just assume it's there and listen for it. Then once you hear it running in the background, to start listening to it and saying, is this moving me towards my goals or away from my goals? And then to change it. So I, what I say is it, it's not willpower, it's word power that moves us forward with anything. And being really mindful of what's important for, for self-talk to be constructive, it has to be inspiring and empowering. And you don't want shame-based self-talk. I'm so bad, I shouldn't do this, I can't believe how stupid I am. I mean, you just... It's not a it's not a way to talk to ourselves. So even just switching that to make it self-talk compassionate and kind, what you would say to a child or your best friend makes a huge difference. Karen, what positive words do you say to yourself? What does your positive self-talk look like? Right. I have several mantras that are from a childhood, which was I tended to be pre perfectionistic and I'm not anymore was I'm doing the best I can. I say that 10 times a day. I say, <laughs> this too shall pass. I am very careful. and I'm very, clients think I'm a real nag with words that are external motivators. I should, I need to, have to, must, I'm supposed to. They're external, make us feel pressured to switch those to internal. I want, would like, prefer, desire. And so I use those myself instead of saying, oh, I need to get this done. I say, I want to get it done. 
I might want to get it done because I want it to be behind me and I'll feel proud, but I don't use external pressure words. And that makes a huge difference. Just just getting the pressure off and getting in touch with why we do want to do things so that we're not running on automatic. Those are pretty much the ones that I use. And I said, there's not a day that goes by that I don't use them. Thank you for explaining. And could you give us a context of an imaginary friend, Jane? You have discussed <laughs> about the imaginary friend, Jane, in your book. Who's Jane? She, I don't know where I got the name Jane. She, I was an only child and I just named this imaginary friend Jane. And yeah, my parents knew about her and I talked about her and I was not hallucinating. I was not delusional, but she was my better self. She just, she'd say, better not do that. I'd say, okay. Um, just funny how I divide, I kind of split her off from myself, but that was who Jane was. And, and, and I say was because she really no longer is. It's now integrated into me. It's Karen. So why did you split her off from yourself? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I Because I was an only child? Because the closest I come is a, is a friend came over with his son, who was maybe three or four. And he, he left his son with me and some was standing in front of the television. And he said, Bradley, do not touch that television. And he walked out of the room. And Bradley stood there saying to himself, no touch, no touch. He was kind of this external. He was talking to himself. And I think I did the same thing with Jane. And I imagine kids, little kids do a lot of that. That's as close as I come to understanding it. Are you saying that we can give a name to our inner voice? We always have this inner voice. Sometimes that inner voice can be positive, sometimes not so positive. Can we make friends with that inner voice? Yes. I, I, it's wonderful when we make friends with that voice. I call it the wise woman or the wise man. And rapid resolution therapy calls it the light within us that, that's just always there. But we forget to seek it out. And when we bathe ourselves in that light, when we listen to that voice, that's wisdom. That That's when we feel best about ourselves. So I, I see it as, as positive. So how do you listen to that inner voice? What is it? Do you have any specific self-care practice to listen to that inner voice? Very often people will say, I had a conversation with a client yesterday. Was, what, why did She said, I'm very stressed. And then I ate this. And I said, well, it just doesn't happen that way. There, there was something that drove you to eat it. And sometimes it's just being quiet and listening to that urge, eat it. I want it. Oh, it'll taste so good. I don't care. And we do say those things. And sometimes it's not quite a voice as maybe a strong feeling, but it still generates action. So it's a message, even though it's not an actual voice in words. So the more we tune into ourselves, the more we will hear where we're directing ourselves. And some people actually form sentences and some people just say words. So it's really different for everybody, but it's getting to know how you speak to yourself. What is it for you? Do you practice some something like meditation or mindfulness? I like to think that I'm 
pretty mindful most of the time. I really like being in the present. I'm not somebody who goes into the past a lot or the future. I really love being in the present. So I would say, yes, I I practice that. And I practice deep breathing and I've certainly taken meditation and I enjoy the process of just, just being with myself and being kind of empty. I like that. I think anybody can learn to do this. It, it's Again, it goes back to persistence. How much do you want it? If other people can learn it, can you learn it too? And I, I hope by people listening to your podcasts and to my work that people will really try to develop their inner, inner self more. We're very external as in this culture, but there's a whole inner self just waiting for us and it's glorious. And there are so, so, so many layers. Once we peel off one layer, there is another layer to peel off when we discover inner self. Yes. And that's, to me, the joy of it. Yes. And it's a journey. There is no destination. (laughs) That's the beauty, good and the bad of discovering yourself. And that's what I tell people when they'll say, but I can't meditate. The thoughts keep coming back. And I say, that that's fine. That's what's supposed to happen. It's the whole process of not attaching to them is what's important. Not that they don't come back. I think people are very destination oriented as opposed to how do you want to spend your minutes? <laughs> Karen, you have written about eight books in your lifetime. Yes. Who encouraged you to become a writer? Was there an inspiration? <laughs> I wrote poems when I was little, and my mother would um, go through them <laughs> with a red pencil and correct them, which is kind of ironic. And but I, I still, I, I just always wrote. And my, I have a friend that I from junior high school, and she said, "I knew you were going to become a writer. You're the only one who wrote these long, long letters." And I wrote them because I loved writing. And I've written songs, written some unpublished, unproduced screenplays. I've written short stories. I just enjoy the process of writing. It's it's like being a therapy a therapist. You, you're joined with yourself every moment. I, it's uh, it's fun. What is your writing process? How do you write? Do you write on paper, computer? Oh, computer, computer. And I do things. I do something that they always say don't do, which is I like it to sound pretty good as I go along. So I might write half a chapter instead of writing the whole thing and then go back and polish it up until I'm where I want it to be. When I was younger, I could literally take off a week from work and and crank out a first draft. Now it it takes me much longer because I can't really go into the night anymore. I'm too, but I I just take at least a week off to, to get started and just be with myself and the subject matter. And I have a new book in mind and I hope to do get I don't, I don't know when, but I'll take some time off and just start working on it and just immerse myself in it. That's, I've had, if it's not fun, I don't want to do it. And that's how it's fun to me. Yes, it should be fun. If it is not fun, it's time to let go. Right? Yes, exactly. So what is your current relationship with food? Well, that's actually not, it's more complicated than I'd like it to be because I've been diagnosed with a whole bunch of food sensitivities. And so I I have to be very careful what I eat, unfortunately. I mean, I would say I'm a, I'm a normal eater and mostly I've 
been a healthy eater, but if you can believe it, I I am food sensitive to all green vegetables at this point. (laughs) And let me tell you, that has altered my life. So I try to enjoy what I can and know that there are some foods I can't eat, and but there's still many that I can. And I would say that if I hadn't resolved my eating disorder, I'd be going wild and crazy. But I feel I still want to feel feed myself well, and I want to enjoy food, and I do the best I can with that. Karen, this has been a very intimate conversation with you. And if our listener can relate to what you are saying and they can relate to that they sometimes have overeating problems or dysregulated eating patterns. What advice or what what would you suggest to them? First, to understand that this is very treatable. When I started having, when I had my problems and I decided I wanted to get better in 1980, there was not such a thing as an eating disorder specialist. There weren't a million books out. Now there are. And to go to somebody who specializes, to read as many books on intuitive eating, not dieting, um, dealing with binge eating and emotional eating, to read books and listen to podcasts, and there's movies even, documentaries, and really make it your business to say, I can change my life. I can change my eating. I don't care if you've been doing it for 30 years or 40 years. That on one level, it's, it's a bad habit. And we can change our habits. Our brains are very malleable and changeable. So having the two keys, I would say, are curiosity and persistence. Those are the things, according to personality researchers, lead to success. So again, curiosity, which means not judgment, and persistence, which is the sense of, I will continue to do it until it's done. And I strongly feel that these principles can be applied in many, many areas of life, not just in solving eating problems, persistence. Absolutely. And and all these things. Absolutely. Yes. And Karen, what are you excited about in the upcoming years of your life? What do you want to create? Well, I do want to get my ninth book birthed into the world. I don't know. I have a really great day-to-day existence. I'd like to go see my relatives and friends in Massachusetts again when I feel comfortable flying and we're not wearing masks anymore. That's about my only goal. I'm not I'm not a very goal-oriented person, although I do a lot and I achieve a lot. I'm pretty happy with my life as it is, mostly because I get to do what I want and I don't do it if I don't want to do it. And where people can find you? I have a website, which is my name, Karen R. Koenig, K-O-E-N-I-G.com. I have a normal eating Facebook page. I blog. I have all, over 1,500 blogs archived on my website. And uh, people can just sign up with their email and they'll get two. The, my blogs are short. They're about one page long. They'll get two of those. You can go on my website and see videos of me describing all my books. And I do teletherapy within the state of Florida. And all the links can so, be found on the show notes at nishangag.me slash podcast. So Karen, last but not the least, do you have any specific request or suggestion or anything you want to share with us? No, just that um, I'm grateful for being on the show and I've 
enjoyed our conversation. You ask very intelligent questions, and that's been a pleasure because not every interviewer does. <laughs> and I, I, I really hope people continue to work on themselves uh, in the way that you you present things in the way that I do, because I think that's the the practices that are most important in life is that finding joy and meaning and uncovering the layers. And I'm also grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. You Your voice is very strong, very intimate. It feels that I'm talking to somebody very close sitting next to me. So thank you so much. Oh, you're okay. very welcome. So okay. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by my own Friday newsletter. Every Friday, I share a newsletter which describes my new learnings. And these learnings can be in the form of new books I'm reading, different podcasts, and blogs I'm exploring to learn new topics such as trauma, healing, relationships, mindfulness, psychology, and much, much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me once again n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me and thank you so much for listening to this show thank you for listening to this podcast episode today if you did enjoy this please subscribe to this podcast on apple podcast or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you've got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again. Mm-hmm.